0: section fourteen of beacon lights of history volume eight great rulers by john lord this librivax recording is in the public domain recording by k hand louis the fourteenth part two another great genius ably assisted louis as soon as he turned his attention to war the usual employment of ambitious kings and this was Letelier, marquis of louvois the great war-minister who laid out the campaigns and directed the movements of such generals as conde turenne and luxembourg and here again it redounds to the sagacity of louis that he should select a man for so great a post whom he never personally loved and who in his gusts of passion would almost insult his master louvois is acknowledged to have been the ablest war-minister that france ever had louis reigned peaceably and prosperously for six years before the ambition of being a conqueror and a hero seized him at twenty-eight he burned to play the part of alexander thenceforth the history of his reign chiefly pertains to his gigantic wars some defensive but mostly offensive aggressive and unprovoked in regard to these various wars which plunged europe in mourning and rage for nearly fifty years louis is generally censured by historians They were wars of ambition, like those of Alexander and Frederick II, until Europe combined against him and compelled him to act on the defensive. The limits of this lecture necessarily prevent me from describing these wars, I can only allude to the most important of them, and then only to show results. His first great war was simply outrageous and was an insult to all Europe, and a violation of all international law in sixteen sixty seven with an immense army he undertook the conquest of flanders with no better excuse than frederick the second had for the invasion of silesia because he wanted an increase of territory flanders had done nothing to warrant this outrage was unprepared for war and was a weak state but rich and populous with fine harbors and flourishing manufactures with nearly fifty thousand men under conde turenne and luxembourg and other generals of note aided by louvois who provided military stores of every kind, and all under the eye of the king himself, full of ideas of glory, the issue of the conflict was not doubtful. In fact, there was no serious defense. It was hopeless from the first. Louis had only to take possession of cities and fortresses which were at his mercy. The frontier towns were mostly without fortifications, so that it took only about two or three days to conquer any city. The campaign was more a court progress than a series of battles. It was a sort of holiday sport for courtiers, like a royal hunt. The conquest of all Flanders might have been the work of a single campaign, for no city offered a stubborn resistance, but the war was prolonged for another year that Louis might more easily take possession of franche comte a poor province, but fertile in soil, well peopled, 120 miles in length and 60 in breadth. In less than three weeks this province was added to France Louis, said the Spanish council in derision, might have sent his valet de chambre to have taken possession of the country in his name and saved himself for the trouble of going in person. This successful raid seems to have contented the king for the time, since Holland made signs of resistance and a league was forming against him, embracing England, Holland, and Sweden the courtiers and flatterers of louis the fourteenth called this unheroic seizure glory and it doubtless added to the dominion of france inflamed the people with military ambition and caused the pride of birth for the first time to yield to military talent and military rank a marshal became a greater personage than a duke although a marshal was generally taken from the higher nobility louis paid no apparent penalty for this crime any more than prosperous wickedness at first usually receives his eyes stood out with fatness to idolatrous courtiers he had more than a heart could wish but the penalty was to come law cannot be violated without impunity the peace of aix la chapelle in sixteen sixty eight followed which made louis the most prominent figure in europe he was then twenty-nine years of age in the pride of strength devoted equally to pleasure and ambition it was then that he was the lover of the duchesse de la Valliere, who was soon to be supplanted by the imperious montespan louis remained at peace for four years but all the while he was preparing for another war aimed against holland which had offended him because resolved to resist him vaster preparations were made for this war than that against flanders five years before the storm broke out in sixteen seventy two when this little state saw itself invaded by one hundred and thirty thousand men led by the king in person accompanied by his principal marshals his war minister louvois and Vauban, to whom was entrusted the direction of sea's operations an engineer who changed the system of fortifications this was the most magnificent army that europe had ever seen since the crusades and much was expected of it against conde turenne luxembourg and valbonne all under the eye of the king with a powerful train of artillery and immense sums of money to bribe the commanders of garrisons holland had only to oppose twenty five thousand soldiers under a sickly young man of twenty-two william prince of orange of course holland was unable to resist such an overwhelming tide of enemies such vast and disproportionate forces city after city and fortress after fortress was compelled to surrender to the generals of the french king they were taken almost as soon as they were invested all the strongholds on the rhine and issel fell the prince of orange could not even take the field louis crossed the rhine without difficulty when the waters were low with only four or five hundred horsemen to dispute his passage this famous passage was the subject of ridiculous panegyrics by both painters and poets it was generally regarded as a prodigious feat especially by the people of paris as if it were another passage of the granicus then rapidly fell arnheim nemingguin utrecht and other cities the wealthy families of amsterdam prepared to embark in their ships for the east indies nothing remained to complete the conquest of holland but the surrender of amsterdam which still held out Holland was in despair, and sent ambassadors to the camp of Louis, headed by Grotius, to implore his mercy. He received them, after protracted delays, with blended insolence and arrogance, and demanded, as the conditions of his mercy, that the states should give up all their fortified cities, pay twenty millions of francs, and establish the Catholic religion. Conditions which would have reduced the Hollanders to absolute slavery, morally and politically from an inspiration of blended patriotism and despair the dutch opened their dikes overflowed the whole country in possession of the enemy and thus made amsterdam impregnable especially as they were still masters of the sea and had just dispersed in a brilliant naval battle under de Ruyter, the combined fleets of france and england it was this memorable resistance to vastly superior foes and readiness to make any sacrifices which gave immortal fame to william of orange and imperishable glory also to the little state over which he ruled what a spectacle a feeble mercantile state without powerful allies bracing itself up to a life-and-death struggle with the mightiest potentate of europe i know no parallel to it in the history of modern times our fathers in the revolutionary war could retreat to forests and mountains but holland had neither mountains nor forests there was no escape from political ruin but by the inundation of fertile fields the destruction to an unprecedented degree of private property and the decimation of the male part of the population nor did the noble defenders dream of victory they only hoped to make a temporary stand william knew he would be beaten in every battle his courage was moral rather than physical He lost no ground by defeat, while Louis lost ground by victory, since it required a large part of his army to guard the prisoners and garrison the fortresses he had taken. Some military writers say that Louis should have persevered until he had taken Amsterdam, as well might Napoleon have remained in Russia after the conflagration of Moscow. In May, Louis entered Holland. In July, all Europe was in confederacy against him through the negotiations of the Prince of Orange. Louis hastened to quit the army when no more conquests could be made in a country overflowed with water, leaving Turenne and Luxembourg to finish the war in Franche-Comte. The able generals of the French king were obliged to evacuate Holland. That little state, by an act of supreme self-sacrifice, saved itself when all seemed lost. I do not read of any military mistakes on the parts of the generals of Louis. They were baffled by an unforeseen inundation and when they were compelled to evacuate the flooded country the dutch quietly closed their dikes and pumped the water out again into their canals by their windmills and again restored fertility to their fields and by the time louis was prepared for fresh invasions a combination existed against him so formidable that he found it politic to make peace the campaigns of Turenne on the Rhine were indeed successful, but he was killed in an insignificant battle, from a chance cannon-ball, while the Prince of Condé retired for from military service after the bloody Battle of Senef. On the whole, the French were victorious in the terrible battles which followed the evacuation of Holland, and Louis dictated peace to Europe, apparently in the midst of victories at Nimeguen in 1678, after six years of brilliant fighting on both sides at the peace of nimeguen louis was in the zenith of his glory as napoleon was after the peace of tilsit he was justly regarded as the mightiest monarch of his age the greatest king that france had ever seen all europe stood in awe of him and with awe was blended admiration for his resources were unimpaired his generals had greatly distinguished themselves and he had added important provinces to his kingdom which was also enriched by the internal reforms of Colbert, and made additionally powerful by commerce and a great navy, which had gained brilliant victories over the Dutch and Spanish fleets. Duquesne showed himself to be almost as great a genius in naval warfare as de Ruiter, who was killed off Aosta in 1676. In those happy and prosperous days the Hôtel de Ville conferred upon Louis the title of Great, which posterity never acknowledged titles says voltaire are never regarded by posterity the simple name of a man who has performed noble actions impresses on us more respect than all the epithets that can be invented after the peace of nemiguen in sixteen seventy eight the king reigned in greater splendor than before there were no limits to his arrogance and his extravagance he was a modern nebuchadnezzar he claimed to be the state l'état c'est moi was his proud exclamation he would bear no contradiction and no opposition the absorbing sentiment of his soul seems to have been that france belonged to him that it had been given to him as an inheritance to manage as he pleased for his private gratification self-aggrandizement he wrote is the noblest occupation of kings most writers affirm that personal aggrandizement became the law of his life and that he now began to lose sight of the higher interests and the happiness of his people and to reign not for them but for himself He became a man of resentments, of caprices, of undisguised selfishness. He became pompous and haughty and self-willed. We palliate his self-exaggeration and pride, on account of the disgraceful flatteries he received on every hand. Never was a man more extravagantly lauded, even by the learned. But had he been half as great as his courtiers made him think, he would not have been so intoxicated. Caesar or Charlemagne would not thus have lost his intellectual balance. The strongest argument to prove that he was not inherently great, but made apparently so by fortunate circumstances, is his self-deception. In his arrogance and presumption, like Napoleon after the Peace of Tilsit, he now sets aside the rights of other nations, heaps galling insults on independent potentates, and assumes the most arrogant tone in all his relations with his neighbors or subjects. He makes conquests in the midst of peace. He cites the princes of Europe before his councils. He deprives the Elector Palatine and the Elector of Treves of some of their most valuable seies. He begins to persecute the Protestants. He seizes Luxembourg and the principality which belongs to it. He humbles the Republic of Genoa and compels the Doge to come to Versailles to implore his clemency. He treats with haughty insolence the Pope himself and sends an ambassador to his court on purpose to insult him he even insists on giving an elector to cologne and the same self-inflated pride and vanity which led louis to trample on the rights of other nations led him into unbounded extravagance in palace building versailles arose at a cost some affirm of a thousand millions of livres unrivalled for magnificence since the fall of the caesars in this vast palace did he live more after the fashion of an oriental than an occidental monarch having enriched and furnished it with the wonders of the world surrounded with princes marshals nobles judges bishops ambassadors poets artists philosophers and scholars all of whom rendered to him perpetual incense never was such a grand court seen before on this earth it was one of the great features of the seventeenth century there was nothing censurable in collecting all the most distinguished and illustrious people of france around him they must have formed a superb society from which the proud monarch could learn much to his enlightenment but he made them all obsequious courtiers exacted from all an idolatrous homage and subjected them to wearisome ceremonials he took away their intellectual independence he banished racine because the poet presumed to write a political tract he made it difficult to get access to his person he degraded the highest nobles by menial offices and insulted the nation by the exaltation of abandoned women who squandered the revenues of the state in their pleasures and follies so that this grand court alike gay and servile intellectual and demoralized became the scene of perpetual revels scandals and intrigues it was at this period that louis abandoned himself to those adulterous pleasures which have ever disgraced the bourbons yet scarcely a single woman by whom he was for a while enslaved retained her influence but a succession of mistresses arose blazed triumphed and fell mancini the niece of mazarin was forsaken without the decency of the slightest word of consolation lavalier the only woman who probably ever loved him with sincerity and devotion had but a brief reign and was doomed to lead a dreary life of thirty-six years in penitence and neglect in a carmelite convent madame de montespan retained her ascendancy longer for she had talents as well as physical beauty she was the most prodigal and imperious of all the women that ever triumphed over the weakness of man She reigned when Louis was in all the pride of manhood and at the summit of his greatness and fame, accompanying him in his military expeditions, presiding at his fêtes, receiving the incense of nobles, the channel of court favor, the dispenser of honors but not of offices, for amid all the slaveries to which women subjected the proudest man on earth by the force of physical charms, he never gave to them his scepter it was not till madame de maintenon supplanted this beautiful and brilliant woman in the affections of the king and until he was a victim of superstitious fears and had met with great reverses that state secrets were entrusted to a female friend for madame de maintenon was never a mistress in the sense that montespan was during this brilliant period of ten years from the peace of nimeguen in sixteen seventy eight to the great uprising of the nations to humble him in sixteen eighty eight versailles and other palaces were completed works of art adorned the capital, and immortal works of genius made his reign illustrious. While Colbert lived, I do not read of any extraordinary blunder on the part of the government. Perhaps palace-building may be considered a mistake, since it diverted the revenues of the kingdom into monuments of royal vanity. But the sums lavished on architects, gardeners, painters, sculptors, and those who worked under them, employed thousands of useful artisans, created taste, and helped to civilize the people." the people profited by the extravagance of the king and his courtiers the money was spent in france which was certainly better than if it had been expended in foreign wars it made paris and versailles the most attractive cities of the world it stimulated all the arts and did not demoralize the nation Would this country be poorer, and the government less stable, if five hundred millions were expended at Washington to make it the most beautiful city of the land, and create an honest pride even among the representatives of the West, perhaps diverting them from building another capital on the banks of the Mississippi? Would this country be richer if great capitalists locked up their money in state securities, instead of spending their superfluous wealth in reclaiming sterile tracts and converting them into gardens and parks? the very magnificence of louis impressed such a people as the french with the idea of his power and tended to make the government secure until subsequent wars imposed such excessive taxation as to impoverish the people and drain the sources of national wealth we do not read that colbert made serious remonstrances to the palace building of the king although afterward louis regarded it as one of the errors of his reign but when colbert died in sixteen eighty five another spirit seemed to animate the counsels of the king and great mistakes were made which is the more noteworthy since the moral character of the king seemed to improve it was at this time he fell under the influence of madame de maintenon and the jesuits they made his court more decorous montespan was sent away busset and lacher gained great ascendancy over the royal conscience louis began to realize his responsibilities the love of glory waned the welfare of the people was now considered whether he was enuied with pleasure or saw things in a different light, or felt the influence of the narrow minded but accomplished and virtuous woman whom he made his wife, or was disturbed by the storm which was gathering in the political horizon, he became more thoughtful and grave, though not less tyrannical. End of section fourteen